Grab your Bibles, if you will, and let's take a look at Romans chapter 9. Um, If this is your first Wednesday night, first time you've ever been here on a Wednesday night, then, boy, you picked a doozy to... um, to start with. But, um, you know, God knew that when He prompted you to come tonight, and, and so we'll, we'll see how it all shakes down. The, um, the reason I say that you've, you've picked a doozy is, um, not because I'm got this wonderful thing for you, but the text is, um, is quite a text. And, uh, let me read it to you. It's Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. We're going to read all the way through the end of 13. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There are some who would tell you that um, the most difficult portion in the entire Bible is what I've just read to you. It's not so much that it's difficult to understand. It's not that difficult to understand. Uh, the difficulty uh, people have with it is in accepting it. Not understanding it. Because it doesn't take a, a massive intellect to, uh, to understand what's said there. The, the issues are not intellectual. The issues are, are um, emotional. Um, and and um, we'll try to unravel some of that tonight. Verses 10 through 12, I, we're going to cover 13 too, but verses 10 through 12 is one sentence. Paul is known for putting together sentences like these that are, um, that are long and complex. But uh, that one sentence contains 58 English words, but only 46 Greek words. But in the center of that one sentence, there is a clause uh, that is set off by um, by dashes. That's what I I call that thing. It's a little bit longer than a dash. Do you you see it? It's in verse 11. In the center of this one sentence that begins in verse 10 and ends at the end of verse 12, in the center of that one sentence, there is a clause that is set off by dashes. And in the center of that clause is found a word that that people really struggle with. It's the word election. It's the Greek word ekloge. Uh, It by no means is the only word that is translated like that. Um, There is is a verb... um, Eklo geomai. That's the verb. This is a noun. And then there's a um, there's another word. Um, 
eklogia. They're all in the same. This is called a cognate family of words. You can see how related they are. But this is the one that's found in, um, in Romans 9-11, and it's translated election. And with that word comes the rub. But now, let me say, uh, again, uh, this is just, the, this is just the, the verbal form of that, or to elect. And, um, and this is a noun which means elect. And this is a noun which means election. So they're all, they're all related words. And um, um, the, the sum total of those, um, of those words appearing in the New Testament is about 40 times. Um, so the people's objections, uh, they really, uh, to this whole idea of election, um, their objections, they, they range far and wide. Um, some people have one brand, some people have another kind. Some people have theological uh, objections. Um, you know, <laughs> I have to tell you, I've heard them a thousand times. So, okay, I mean, th- th- here's, here's the things that start popping off in people's heads. Okay, well, I, I don't understand. Then why do evangelism? Or um, uh, here's, here's one that seems to come up fairly frequently. What about free will? Can't tell you how often I've heard those questions uh, over the course of uh, 32 years of ministry. But so, so some people have some theological objections that they voice. Others uh, voice uh, their objections are more visceral. Uh, they're more emotional in nature. Um, they'll say things like, that's not fair. Or, um, I, I couldn't believe in a God uh, like that. Or um, the one that I hear particularly from women is, um, what about my children? So uh, those, are, those are some of the things that you face when this subject comes up. And uh, it comes up not because I'm, uh, I've uh, forced it on you. It comes up because we're studying the book of Romans. And we're in Romans chapter 9, verses 10, 11, and 12. Um, so where do you begin? Where do you begin to unravel this thing that, uh, that seems to, to evoke lots of different objections? Let, let, me, let me begin like this. First of all, let me tell you that for a lengthy discussion of all the issues surrounding election and the opportunity for you to ask all your questions, uh, you're going to have to sign up for the systematics class that I teach twice a year. Uh, I'm in one right now. In fact, we had half of it Saturday, and Lord willing, we'll have the other half this coming Saturday. But that's eight hours of discussing these matters. So you can imagine uh, we're not going to be able to discuss them at the same length uh, and the same intricacy that we are enabled to in, the, in that systematics class. So if you want something where you can, you know, ask your questions and, and fight and dialogue and I mean, not fight, I mean, legitimately argue. Um, you need to sign up for that, but you just missed January's, so um, the next one will be in July. What I try to do is put those things in the in the dead of winter and the dead of summer. So you know it's too cold and it's too hot to go outside. So we we um, that's when we do them. Um, so we won't be spending that much time. Um, I can tell you that um, this will probably our little discussion night will probably run over two Wednesdays tonight and, and next Wednesday, and we may uh, go. Uh, I hope not, but I, I, we may go a, a minute or two late tonight. Because I cannot stop in the middle of this. I mean, I've, I've got this thing organized, I, I hope, to where it's somewhat palatable. 
um, but I cannot stop and cut it off and leave you uh, hanging. So I'm going to go to a finish. And I'm uh, just, I mean, normally I don't do that. You know that. I'm usually out of here at 745, if not before. But tonight um, we need to. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing that I want to say is this. You, you've got to face this, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you have to face the fact of election. You have to face it. Because it's in the text. Um, and as I said, this is not the only time it's in the text. It's in, it's, in the, it's in the New Testament some 40 different times in those three different Greek words. Um, so you're, you're going to have to face it. And as long as you believe that God exercises any control, any control over, over history or over, over the lives of people, then you're going to have to come to some kind of conclusions about this. Uh, guys, you do not want a conditional God. Uh, a God that is um, conditioned by your responses. That is, is sitting up in heaven and wondering what you're going to do, and as a result of doing, seeing what you're going to do, then he kind of does his thing. That's a conditional God. You don't want that. I, I, I can just promise you, you don't want that kind of God. Uh, you don't want him to exist. And he doesn't. But, um, but my, I, you're going to have to figure out what you believe about all this. I, I've got it pretty much figured out for me. And I hope to give you some uh, help tonight. The third thing that I'd like to say, just in kind of, by way of introduction, is that Paul's argument here in, in Romans 9 really began, and I said this three weeks ago, it began in verse 6. I said to you that verse 6 is key. And then what he's doing now is simply working out that statement that he makes at the last half of verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We, we've looked at that, I, I hope, with uh, a fair degree of um, understanding on your part. And, but um, after he makes that statement, then he begins to give you some illustrations in verse 7. And the first illustration that he uses is, is drawn from the family of Abraham. He says, not all who are Israel are Israel. And here's my first illustration. Go back to the family of Abraham. Abraham had two sons, and, and one of them was not chosen to carry uh, the covenantal blessing. Um, so that's the first example that he gives you. And then you'll notice in verse 10 that he begins this way. And not only, that, and not only so. My, my point is, guys, he's continuing that same argument of verses 7, 8, and 9. He's giving you another example. Is all he's, he's adding one example to the other example. The one example is drawn from the family of Abraham. The second example, the second illustration of his principle of verse 6 is drawn from the family of Isaac. He is unfolding that argument. Not all who are descended from, uh, from Israel belong to Israel. Now, look at the family of Abraham. And not only that, look at the family of Isaac. These are illustrations of the point that he's trying to make. The fourth thing that I want to say in terms of, um, just by way of introduction, um, guys, um, we're going <laughs> to, the, the, the two biggies that seem to just trouble people the most has to do with this is not fair, and secondly, um, what about free will? And we're going to address both of those. 
But that's all we can address. And the free will thing, we're gonna, you're going to have to come back next week. You're going to get that one. Uh, we don't have time. What I'm going to try to do is address the this is not fair thing tonight. But what I want you to see is not only is election fair, <laughs> but it is the only thing that is fair. That is, it's the only chance we have. It's election or nothing. And, and I, I, I hope to show you why I say that. But guys, um, um, far from it being unfair, it's, it's the only fair... It's, it's our grand and glorious hope. And, and I, I, I grieve over that we oppose this so much when we ought to be celebrating it. And I hope you'll see some of that uh, in a minute. All right. Those are, those are just by way of uh, introductions. Let's see if we can uh, take a look at the text and, and unravel a bit of it. The first thing that I want to draw to your attention about the text is the statement that he makes. Uh, it's really in verse 11 where he says, They were not yet born. Do you see that? That's in verse 11. Now, God has made a choice, and that choice was made while these two twins were still in the womb. That's the first thing that you need to see, guys. So this election business, whatever it is, it is not based on anything done by the individual chosen. That's the first point he's trying to make in this whole... You know, they were, they were still in the womb. Uh, uh, and he says, they were not yet born. So however you understand it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you got to make sure that you understand this. That election is not based on anything done by the individual elected or chosen. You know, uh, one of the examples that I, I like to use at this point is found, if, you, you've got, if you can find Deuteronomy 7 quite quickly... Because people are comfortable with this language. They are comfortable in calling Israel the chosen people or the chosen nation. They're comfortable with that for whatever their reason is. And, and, but when we come to the New Testament and say that, you know, that, they're, that God is still doing that, they, they get their hackles up for whatever reason. Um, but he's always done this. And uh, in, in Deuteronomy 7, if you found that, let, let me show you just something that he says to Israel. This is Deuteronomy 7, 7. He says, um, uh, I tell you what, start at 6, 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, guys, you can, you can jump over that quickly, but there were other nations that, uh, you know, there was Egypt and Assyria, and he says, I have chosen Israel above all the nations on the face of the earth. I mean... That wasn't done in a vacuum. There's all kinds of nations out there, but he chose this one. Now, 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 take a look at this, guys. This is what I want you to see. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, do you see what he said? I didn't choose you because of anything about you. I didn't choose you because you were a great nation. Very honestly, you were a, a very small nation. Okay, then, if you didn't choose Israel for that reason, what reason did you choose them? It's in verse 8. 
but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand. Again, do you see the reasoning that's in that? Do you see the only explanation that is given there as to why God chose Israel? Do you see the only thing he, he says? You know why I chose Israel? Here's the explanation. Because I loved Israel. So the only explanation as to his choice of Israel was to be found in the great heart of God. I chose Israel because I loved Israel. Now, are you willing to allow him... Oh, that sounds so ugly. Are, are, Are you willing to deny him that prerogative? That he can or can't do that? You know, guys... um, uh, just to make this a little bit practical, I try to weave something in here. You know, um, gentlemen, has, have your wives ever told you or ever asked you, honey, do you love me? I mean, Susie doesn't do that anymore, but in the early days of our marriage, when I took her to Fort Lauderdale, she was... Uh, I remember taking her out to dance one night uh, right on the ocean, and we came home, and it was just this great night. We sat on the couch, and she said, do you love me? Anyway... Um, but gentlemen, if you ever get that and you say and you say, "Oh, yes, I love you." And she says, "Why?" Gentlemen, don't ever answer that question. Um, Jimmy Umloff was telling us something that he heard a preacher say, uh, he was telling us in a meeting that we had today. But you don't ever answer that question, gentlemen. Because if you if you if you do answer it, here's what you I mean, you you've gotten yourself in a peck of trouble, but but you also you have harmed your wife. Let's just say your wife says, "Why?" and you say, "Well, I love you because you're a good cook. You know what you've done to her? You have told her what the terms of your love are. And so for the rest of her life now, she has got to concentrate on being a good cook. Because if she ever fails to be that good cook, then you may stop loving her. So her ticket to security in your love is being a good cook. All I'm saying, guys, is what Romans 9 11 says, he did this choosing before they were ever born. That is, there's nothing about them that evoked this choice on the part of the Heavenly Father. They were twins in the same womb, and Esau... I think many of you know this. Esau goes on to become the father and the founder of the Edomites. If you've ever read your Old Testament, you've seen the Edomites. But um, uh, Esau was the father of the Edomites. And the Edomites were, and still are, enemies of Judaism and hated by Israel in the Old Testament, and hated today, ladies and gentlemen. And yet, Esau, the father of the Edomites, was just as much a son of Isaac as was Jacob. The Edomites, hated by Israel, had the same mother and father as did Jacob whose name, by the way, got changed to Israel. You do remember that, don't you? Edomites and Israelites were in the same womb 
at the same time, which illustrates, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, because God saw fit to choose one of those over the other. Now, that's the first thing. The second point I I, want to make is the choice exercised by God went against all of the normal standards of primogenitor. I've used that word before. uh, Primogenitor. If it's a new word to you, it just means the rights of the firstborn. But God's choice of Jacob over Esau um, bypasses all of the normal standard rules of primogenitor, which is huge, ladies and gentlemen. It is huge. Because what God has done is demonstrate, by, by bypassing human expectations, that there is no explanation, there is no explanation um, except God's sovereign right to dispose of the destinies of, of human beings as he pleases, that is the only explanation that you have for why he chose Jacob and not Esau. He has done it in the face of any so-called rights that we might think belong to us. And so he bypasses those so that no one could ever say, oh, the reason that he chose Esau is because he was the firstborn. He bypasses that so that you will get this point. That his, his, um, his elective grace is completely unassociated with anything about who you are or what you've done. Now, here's the third thing that I want you to see in the text. There are two quotes, two Old Testament quotes in this text. Uh, one is found in verse 12. The quote is, the older will serve the younger. Um, that's from Genesis 25-23, in case you're interested. The other Old Testament quote is, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, go back to verse 12, uh, that first quote, the older will serve the younger. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, that God said that to Rebekah while those two children were still in her womb. It was said before they were born. And then you come to this verse 13, which is so offensive to some, to maybe many. It's not offensive to me, and I, and I hope I, you can, you'll see that in a moment. But they trip up over this word hated. They trip up over the word hated because they, the only thing that comes to their minds is some kind of clenched teeth, grinding jaws, clenched fist, I That's, that's really poor Bible scholarship. <laughs> really poor. Uh, for instance, in Luke chapter 14, I think it's verse 29, where Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to hate mother and father. What did he mean there? Do you think he was asking for you to clench your fist and grind your teeth at your mother and daddy? 
You think that's what he meant? <laughs> of course not. Uh, I mean, you understand it, as Spurgeon uh, pointed out. It, it simply means to love less. You see that. Do you remember the story? Do you, oh gosh, remember the story of um, uh, Jacob who had the, the uh, no, um, yeah, Jacob who had the two wives, uh, Rachel and Leah, and he loved one more than the other. He loved Rachel more than Leah, and the text says she was hated. That's in Genesis 29. Was Leah hated in the way that clenched, fist and grinding? No, she was just in second place. She was loved less than her sister. I mean, th- that's all this text means. But, but the thing that I want you to hear, ladies and gentlemen, is something that Spurgeon said. And, and this, this is enchanting to me. Just utterly enchanting. Um, Spurgeon said, the thing that, the thing over which I marvel, this is not an exact quote. He says, the thing over which I marvel is not the fact that God hated Esau. The thing over which I marvel is that he loved Jacob. Because he didn't have to do that either. (laughs) The thing that is celebratable, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, what we have done in the 21st century, and by the way, this whole notion is not, I mean, it's, it's offensive to the Western mind, but it's not offensive all over the world, let me just tell you. It's us who have become so uh, uh, used to and demanding of uh, self-orbiting lifestyle. That's the, we're the ones that immediately descend upon it. He hated Esau. The whole world doesn't do that. Just, the, just us Western elites. Um, but, but Spurgeon was not, was not at all put off that he hated or loved less. He was just so glad that he loved Jacob. That's the thing to celebrate. Guys, now, now, the distinction between these two brothers, between uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, is a distinction that is made by God Himself. He did that. Now, that's another thing that you're going to have to cope with. God is the one doing this. Um, now, why did he do this? Why did God set his affection on Jacob and not Esau? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the answer as to the why is found in verse 11 inside those brackets, inside those dashes. Look, I mean, do you have that in the middle of the verse 11? You see those dashes? It starts off this way. In order that. Gang. Those are words designed to answer a why question. Why did he do that? In order that. So why did God set his affection on Jacob and not Esau? In order that. Here's the answer to your why question. It's it's right there, guys. But very honestly, the real struggle for most people comes with the words that are found bracketed in verse 11. They don't like that why. But I want you to notice what's being said in those brackets, ladies and gentlemen. Look at it. It says, in order that, why did he set his affection on Jacob and not Esau? In order that, God's purpose of election might continue or stand. 
Now, now, what does that mean? What, what is what um, what is what's being said? Here's what's being said, guys. God is carrying out His great purposes by means of and through this process of election. And gang, this is nothing new. It's really a repeat of what he said over in chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Um, you know, look at it, uh, eight twenty-eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to, in, in order that he might be the firstborn. And those he predestined, then he also called. You, you see, at the center of all that, gang, is the unfolding purpose of God. And that's the answer to the why. Why did God set his love on Jacob and not Esau? Well, so that his purpose might be accomplished. And the only way that his purpose might be made certain is through this process called and known as election. The way he made certain that his purposes would be accomplished and fulfilled is through this glorious doctrine of election. Now, guys, go, go back. Go back to the beginning of verse 6. Remember how it started? But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Gang, what is it that makes certain that God's Word will not fail? Well, it's because God's purpose is being carried out through the process of election. That's why His Word is made so sure. Now, back in verse 11, the second half of those words in the bracket, not because of works, but because of His call, He's just repeating the same thing He said. Uh, he, you can equate the word call. I mean, it's, it, 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 He's just trying to emphasize that the result of the action of God is completely independent of anything about us. It has to do with his call. It has to do with his purpose. And he's carrying those out through this process known and called, known as election. And some people don't like that. And I want you to know that we're, my salvation or yours, dependent on anything about me, <laughs> it would certainly fail. I think we ought to be doing a double back flip over this and the glory contained in it. And unfortunately, people don't like it. And um, I can say, at the very, at the very best, I guess it would be the best. If this, what I've just taught you, is not true, then there would be absolutely no grounds whatsoever for you to have any confidence ever to be had in this life about the destiny of your soul. But because this is true, you can have great confidence because, sal because salvation from front to back is the glorious purpose and work of God. 
Now, let me conclude with, um, with some comments about this issue of fairness real quick. I got I two, and then next week we'll come back to this free will thing. But um, uh, I, I have two comments to make about fairness. People say, this isn't fair. If you, can, if you can find Ezekiel 18 real quick, we ain't got much time here. Um, but we're going to finish this. I got five minutes. I think I can get it done. But Ezekiel 18, I want to read you. Well, really, there's two verses, but they both say the same thing. And actually, there's another one in 3317, if you want that one. But let me just read you one of them for the sake of time. This is Ezekiel 18, verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not fair? Is it not your ways that are not fair? <laughs> Do you see what's happened here, guys? There is a certain definition of fairness that I want you to know God rejects. Whatever way you might want to define fairness, it's flawed. He says, you say to me, my ways aren't fair. Well, let me tell you what, Israel. Here's what I say to you. It's not my ways that aren't fair. It's yours. So all I'm saying, guys, is our whole definition of fairness is off-center. That's the first thing. But here's the second thing, guys. And over this, I hope you'll celebrate alongside of me. How could it be otherwise? That is, how could God accomplish salvation otherwise? Keep that thought and turn to Romans chapter 3. And this is where I, I want to try to show you that it's not only fair. It's either election or nothing. All right, guys. Look at this. Romans chapter 3 at verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Here it is. No one seeks for God. Now, let, let me, what do you think that word no one means? Do you, there's just a few that do. I mean, all those, those sweet little southern evangelicals, they do. No, ladies and gentlemen. There is not one part of us that has not been ruined by the fall. Fallen man does not seek God. Not only does he not seek Him, he can't seek Him. Guys, look again if you can, if you can keep it. Look again at Romans 8. And all those wonderful things that, that are said there, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, uh, on down. And those whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and those he, whom he justified, he also glorified. Gang, look at it. God is the author of every one of those things. From front to back. From the top to the bottom. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And did he not choose to save? We would all be lost because there is none that seeketh after God. None. Romans 3, verse 11. 
The only thing that Paul is adding in, in Romans chapter 9 is that this election is entirely apart from any supposed right, uh, right of good works or right of birth. It is entirely due to the will and the mercy and the purposes of a sovereign God. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I think you need to drop your sword. I think you need to raise a toast. Because I want you to know something. Left to yourselves, none of you, not one, none of us, none of us, would ever pursue this God. And so what did he do? He elected unto salvation. Now guys, um, do you um, still have some questions, do you? (laughs) I'm not surprised. I do too. I I don't have all the answers. I got a few more that we don't have time to go over. But I, I know this creates some questions for you. But I want you to know, over 84% of your questions, there are good answers. Real good answers. And that's what we go through in the systematics class. But said simply, said as simply as I can say it, salvation is of God. That's what this means. It is His idea, and it is His work. And because it is His idea, and it is His work, it is as solid and as dependable and as certain as he is. You want to know why you're safe, ladies and gentlemen? You don't want to know why your eternity is secure? Because you're so reliable and so dependable. You know better than that. Left to ourselves. If any part of this was left to me, I would find a way to blow it. But this great good God of ours has seen fit to save wretches like us. From start to finish. I, I, I just want to tell you this real quick, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm not picking on, but I, uh, I don't think he would mind. Steve, on. Steve told a story in our systematics class the other day, and, and I'm going I'm to tell it, Steve. I hope it won't embarrass you. I, if I, you know, I, my motives are good. Um, he was talking about his son and how he had, he had discipled his own son and the beauty of, of discipling his son. But one of the things that his son continued to struggle with was, a, was an uncertainty and a confidence and an assurance of his salvation. And, out of, and Steve said, it wasn't until my son came to grasp this that his fears were relieved. Oh, my friends, how glorious is this. And let me just tell you, if you still want to whack away at it, go right ahead. We don't, we don't ask for theological agreement around here. Uh, but, but let me just say this. Before you throw this away, Make sure you know what you're throwing away. 
because you are about to place salvation in the hands of some pretty unpredictable, unreliable, finicky people. As for me and my house, I'd rather leave it right where it is. And the certain and sure purposes of a sovereign God of grace. Our Father, I do pray that this will be helpful for your people and that they might discover a greater confidence over their own soul, a greater certainty about who you are, and that you would get so much bigger for all of us that you're not weak and beggarly, but you are you rule in the heavens and on the earth. And we get the privilege of calling you our Father. Thank you for saving a wretch like me. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.